This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. I'm thrilled to be sitting down today with Dr. Mark Z. Jacobson. Mark Z. Jacobson is the director of the Atmosphere and Energy Program and a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Stanford University. He joined Stanford's faculty in 1994. He seeks to understand air pollution and global warming problems and to develop large-scale, clean, renewable energy solutions to these major and urgent problems. He has published three textbooks and 170 peer-reviewed articles. The most recent book, published by Cambridge University Press, is titled 100% Clean Renewable Energy and Storage for Everything. The book is the culmination of Dr. Jacobson's life's work in transitioning the world to 100% clean renewable energy, and it examines the technologies, economics, and social political aspects of that transition. He has received awards in 2005 and 2013 for his work on black carbon climate impacts. He also received awards in 2013, the Global Green Policy Design Award, and 2015, the PNAS Cozzarelli Prize. In 2018, the Judy Friedman Lifetime Achievement Award, and 2019, from a political for his work on energy. He has served on a committee for the U.S. Secretary of Energy. He's given a TED Talk. He's appeared on The David Letterman Show, and he co-founded The Solutions Project. His work is the scientific basis of the energy portion of the U.S.'s Green New Deal and of 100% renewable energy laws worldwide. On February 9, 2021, as part of the joint declaration of the Global 100% Renewable Energy Strategy Group, Dr. Jacobson joined other leading climate scientists and experts to propose a 10-point declaration to transform the world's energy supply to 100% renewable energy. This statement will be specifically published in support of President Biden's United States climate change agenda. To support the transformation to renewable energy by signing your name to the declaration, please visit www.global100restrategygroup.org. We've put a link in the show notes as well, so you can find the information there. And now, here's my conversation with Mark. Hi, Mark. Hi, Deb. How are you? (laughs) Great. So, Mark, I want to think back with you a couple of years, and our initial conversation about climate change goes back to probably about 2015 or so, when we struck up a conversation and you casually mentioned to me that you believe climate change was constituting a human rights violation on the level of genocide. At the time, I was a young graduate student who thought I knew what I was talking about and who happened to be writing on the topic of human rights violations and genocide. And I vociferously disagreed with your claim, specifying in very loud terms the ways in which international law directly contradicted claims that climate change constituted a genocide. Genocide, or what in legal terms is qualified as an intentional and targeted attempt to persecute and annihilate all members of a group, seemed to me to be the wrong term to describe the genuine and real caused by environmental destruction. But in the intervening years from 2015 to 2021, uh, I actually think that the evidence might now bear out your case. And I'm rethinking my position. 
with what we've seen about the evidence of hidden by companies like Exxon, who knew about the reality of climate change destruction far before the public or climate scientists did and intentionally hid that knowledge. So now we know that there are severe death rates due to poor air quality and pollution, particularly in areas inhabited by the poor. Let's revisit that conversation from 2015 now that we're in 2021. What do you think? My first uh, clarification is that there is a difference between emissions that affect air pollution health directly and emissions that affect climate change. So the emissions that affect climate change are like, for example, carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, which is N2O, methane, chlorofluorocarbons. These chemicals have little impact, direct impact on uh, health directly, but they do have indirect impacts when they raise the temperature of the earth, then that can feed back to worsen air pollution, cause uh, heat stress and heat stroke and death and destruction. But in my initial conversation with you, I was actually referring mostly to the other chemicals that directly cause air pollution, mortality, and morbidity, namely all the other exhaust chemicals such as oxides of nitrogen, oxides of hydrogen, hydrocarbons, and those chemicals and particulate matter, those chemicals coupled with sunlight produce even more chemicals that cause deadly air pollution. And in fact, worldwide, about 7 million people die from air pollution prematurely. And these are preventable deaths. Now, climate change does enhance these deaths in terms of numbers, and it causes additional deaths due to other factors, like, as I mentioned, heat stroke and heat stress, and also famine in some parts of the world, for example. So I do strongly believe that because these are preventable, we do know about them, and they are caused, uh, well, they're caused by our consumption, uh, but there are companies that uh, produce these, the the gasoline, the fuels that are burned uh, that cause these deaths. And so there is a responsibility in my mind of uh, the fossil fuel companies and also biofuels because biofuels mm-hmm. also, when you burn them, they produce air pollution. In fact, a lot of the deaths mm-hmm. are due to biofuel burning as well. Uh, and mm-hmm. especially in developing countries, biofuel burning in, in homes for heating and cooking is the number one cause of air pollution death. I mean, there is this causal effect from uh, companies, although you know, people also bear responsibility, but now there are alternatives so we can't get away from this kind of burning. You've dedicated your life to thinking and responding to climate change and the need to innovate in response to climate destruction. What got you interested from the get-go in thinking about climate change? Was was there a moment or an experience that you had that sparked your interest? When I was young, like 13 years old, I, I used to play tennis and travel to San Diego and Los Angeles to play. And the air pollution in both cities was horrible. And at the time, well, back in the 1950s, Los Angeles was the most polluted city in the world, and also in the yeah. 1960s and 70s. And it's no longer the most polluted, although it's still the most polluted in the United States. But I just noticed this pollution, and I felt it when I was trying to play, and you, you could breathe it, and you could throat is scratchy, and you know, I'd see some people vomiting, and you could not even sometimes see two or three quarts down. And I thought, why should people live like this? And so at that time, I thought, well, when I grow up, that's what I want to study, is try to you know, clean the air. Yeah and try to understand the problem and then try to solve it. And along the way, over the next few years, when I started going to college, I also started looking at global climate, although it wasn't as big of a thing back then to the general public, it was still talked about and I realized these problems are related. So I was determined to understand and solve both those problems. And that's what I ended up doing for my PhD and then my career after that. 
You say that climate destruction was not as big of a deal back then. Do you feel like policy has changed since you started your career? And what, if so, have you found to be effective in changing policy? Yeah, policies have changed quite a bit. I mean, especially in the last five to 10 years, it's kind of been an acceleration. There was a major climate initiative in 1997, the Kyoto Protocol, although most countries in the world signed on, uh, the United States actually didn't ratify it, and there was very little actual impact of the Kyoto Protocol, but it was at least a step. Since then, there have been you know, several other agreements, most notably the Paris Agreement, which is about five years ago. You know, even that, though, is still too weak. You know, people are realizing that we need to transition the world entirely away from fossil fuels and biofuels to clean renewable energy uh, as soon as possible, and really by at least 80% by 2030 and 100% by uh, no later than 2050, although we really think it should be done by 2035. In fact, if we can get 80% by 2030, we should be able to get 100% by 2035. To avoid more than 1.5 degree Celsius global warming compared with uh, the early 1900s, and that's kind of the threshold, 1.5 degrees Celsius, uh, right now we're at about 1.1 or so degrees Celsius above that uh, above the early 1900s. And so we're already seeing devastating effects of climate change. But in terms of policies, or in our own research group, we've been working on uh, plans to transition states and countries and cities entirely to clean renewable energy. And I'm actually pleased to report that these plans have been translated into laws all over the world. And also in the United States, 14 states and territories, including California and New York, have adopted our goals of 100% renewable energy. Now, when I say energy, that's all energy. So electricity, transportation, buildings, and industry. So most of these laws, in fact, all these state laws are just electricity, which is about 20% of all energy and use energy. So that's a step, but we need a lot more. But there are like 176, or not more than that, maybe 180 cities in the U.S. that have now committed to 100% renewables. Mm -hmm. And there are 61 countries as well, but again, in the electric power sector. So, and then one more thing, 280 or some odd companies, including eight of the 10 biggest companies in the world, have committed to 100% renewables. So despite the international agreements, uh, like the Paris Accord and Kyoto Protocol, it's really these renewable portfolio standards that are actually having the, the most impact right now, because as a result of them, and especially companies that have committed their building huge amounts of wind and solar, uh, battery storage, we're going to electric vehicles. And there, so there is this big growth and in the, the international community now believes that we do need a transition to entirely clean renewable energy. Uh, although there are people who you know, think that, oh, we should have renewables plus other things, which I call all of the above policies. And, and I don't think all of the above policies work because they usually promote technologies like carbon capture, uh, nuclear and biofuels and synthetic fuels that either uh, continue air pollution like bioenergy or carbon capture, they actually increase air pollution. Uh, or are way expensive and take too long or have catastrophic risks associated with them like nuclear power. And so there's, they're really not solutions at all. Uh, so I think we need to focus on clean renewable energy that will get us quickly to our goal at the lowest cost possible. You know, it's interesting this morning, right before we got on this call, I was reading former President Barack Obama's book, A Promised Land. He was talking about how in 20, about 10, he had 
a growing awareness of the problems of and the destruction of climate change. And yet he talks about a moment in about 2010 when discussion and policy formation around climate change would have for him been a campaign killer, an absolute loss of power. Can you pinpoint a moment where there's a shift in our politics in, in terms of at least for the Democratic Party in the United States, thinking about climate change as a mobilizing issue for an electorate rather than a policy or, or political death knell? Well, I think, I mean, Al Gore was probably the one who really shifted things. And that was back in 2000. And I think, you know, he had a, he won the popular vote even with that in mind, you know, so even though he didn't win the election. So I don't think Obama was correct to think that it would have been a death knell. I think it's really how you communicate it. And I think, unfortunately, you know, he was certainly very good in many things, but he also, in many administrations before him, had promoted this all of the above policy. So really didn't understand the solutions that well. And when you don't understand the solutions, you also probably don't understand the problem that well. And when you don't understand the problem or the solutions really well, uh, then it's hard to communicate it clearly. And especially because what we find is that when you do transition, even back then to clean renewable energy, not only do energy requirements decrease and that results in lower costs, it also, because you need to build this whole infrastructure results in lots of jobs. So you really have to talk about the jobs, the cost savings, the energy security, and the, and the other benefits, uh, you know, reducing air pollution, reducing climate damage and understand what that damage is. Unless you can communicate all that information, which means you really have to understand it. Well, yeah, sure, you're, you're going to uh, lose a lot of people. And I think that's what his fear was. Uh, but, you know, Al Gore was a really good communicator with yeah. regard to climate change because he studied it and knew a lot about it. Well, you're leading me into my next question, which I was listening to you talk on, on Dave Letterman's show. And I heard you say that we actually have enough solar wind and hydroelectric energy and the technology to utilize it available to power the entire world. We have that available right now. So, so what gets in the way? Are there technical issues, policy issues, economic costs? Uh, is it a communication issue, as you've suggested, infrastructural complications or prohibitions? What gets in the way of leveraging this obvious opportunity to avert climate change and to move in the direction that seems so obviously necessary and fruitful. And the consequences of not doing this are, are so dire and existential. What gets in the way? I should first say there is a transition going on. Like last year in the United States, for example, 80% of all the new electricity was wind plus solar plus, plus a little hydro. And that's a lot, 80%. But the thing is, there's so much in, invested infrastructure already there that's fossil fuel you know, when, in one year, you're not going to replace a whole lot of fossil fuel. So it takes many, many years and sometimes decades to replace all the existing fossil fuel infrastructure. So that's part of it is even though there is a growth of renewables, you're just the attrition rate of the fossil fuels is, is slow. And so you need really strong policies to overcome that, to really, and deadlines to overcome that. And so several states in the U.S. have done that, as I mentioned, 14 states and territories. But there are 50 states and, and extra territories that haven't done that. I mean, the total 50 states that need to do it. And, and so strong policies need to be put in place and you have these people opposing it. Uh, and for example, like we, we see there, like just in the last few days in Texas, there's been this, this cold spell and lots of power went out. And even though 50% of the electricity production is from natural gas, and that's what went down the most, and also from and coal and nuclear are the next ones. And some of them went down. You know, the governor of, of Texas blamed the wind turbines and the Green New Deal, which doesn't even exist yet. 
And so you have people who will use any opportunity to dismiss renewables because it's politically opportune because they have vested interests like the fossil fuel industry, which is very strong in Texas, trying to keep you know, renewables out. If that's, what you, that's why we haven't gone so fast uh, because yeah. we have this, this vested interest opposing it. Now, having said that, if we look at, I think it's like nine of the 10 states in the US with the most installed wind, they're all Republican-led states. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's because, it's not because policies, it's because the cost of wind energy is so cheap. In fact, wind and solar, large-scale solar, are both the cheapest forms of new electricity in the United States by far. They're half the cost of new natural gas. And so that's why last year, for example, we had 80% of new electricity in the US was wind and solar and a tiny bit of hydro. So yeah, it's a combination of there's so much embedded infrastructure that we need to transition, plus the fact that we have vested interests that are opposing uh, the transition as well. Yeah. And that vested interest, I think, leads to, or at least leverages misinformation. The interview I cited was from 2013. That was your Letterman appearance. And in that interview, you actually talked about how misinformation regarding global warming has led people to not take it seriously. So it's 2021. We haven't fixed global warming. And we also haven't fixed the misinformation ecosystem. It's only expanded due largely to the internet, even as the internet has also contributed to the availability of information about pretty much everything, including climate change. Do you think that the rise and the continuation of social media and the internet since 2013 has helped to inform more people about the dangers of global warming? Or do you think it's just made the misinformation and the ability to amplify misinformation oftentimes with intentional consequences that stem from vested interests in misinformation proliferating? Do you think that that's made the problem worse? Well, I think both are true. I think there's both more information about the problems and more misinformation trying to oppose solutions. I should point out that there people do not have to believe in climate change to believe in the solutions. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I'll recall a public opinion poll a couple of years ago where I think there was like 26,000 people in 13 countries were polled. And they asked one question, well, do, do you believe climate change is a significant international problem? And only 66% of the people believed it was. However, they asked, do you believe that we can power the world entirely with renewable energy. And 82% of the people in the same poll said they do believe that and they support that, which is great for me because I, you know, the uh, moral of the story is you don't have to believe in the problem so long as you believe in the solution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. if, if people believe in the solution in, in transitioning to renewable energy, but don't believe in global warming, well, that's fine because we really just, if we transition the energy will solve that problem. And I should say, well, why do people believe in renewables but not in global warming? Well, because they asked other questions in the poll. Well, one set of responses was because renewables uh, provide energy independence. They make people proud of their own local production of energy. Renewables will create more jobs, provide some energy security, and in some cases, lower costs as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, people can like renewable energy without believing in climate change. And that's why, in fact, we see many states in the US that are led by Republicans who tend to not believe in climate change so much have a huge amount of wind and some with a huge amount of solar as well, because it's really an economic advantage to go to wind and solar 
and even if you don't believe in climate change. You're one of the original seven signatures on a declaration to have 100% global renewable energy by 2035. What is that document and what exactly are you hoping to accomplish with it? Just in, a, uh, in the last week or so, a group of seven uh, of scientists, we came up with a declaration. And by the way, all of us study 100% renewable energy systems and have been for many years. And there are, in fact, over a dozen scientific groups around the world that study 100% renewable energy systems, and there have been hundreds of papers on this. But we came together and we put a 10-point declaration uh, talking about the, the need to transition the world to 100% clean renewable energy by 2035, electric power by 2030, and everything else by 2035. So stressing the need for a rapid transition, but also stressing the ability for us to transition to 100% clean renewable energy. And we, you know, we gave the reasons why it would benefit uh, humanity. And we actually have a signature page where anybody can go on and join this. We had 46 other scientists join it immediately, and then we opened it up. And then we have around a thousand additional uh, signatures since then, but we welcome as many additional signatures as possible. And really this is to encourage to really then take this take this declaration and go to policymakers and encourage uh, the implementation of laws to transition to 100% clean renewable energy for all energy purposes, uh, because we need to do this and we can't get distracted by energy sources that are not clean and renewable. Things like bioenergy and and carbon capture, where we allow fossil fuel plants to persist, but and then claim that we're going to then either take carbon from those fossil fuel plants or carbon out of the air, uh, whereas we still allow the air pollution from these fossil fuel plants, we still allow the mining from them and we hardly, those technologies to take carbon out of the air or from fossil fuel plants, they hardly reduce any carbon uh, compared with, and they all require energy. And if you take that energy from renewable energy, all you're doing is taking carbon out of the air instead of that renewable energy could instead be used to replace a coal plant or a gas plant and not only take carbon from the air by preventing it from going in in the first place, but also eliminate air pollution and mining from that coal and gas plant. So we're, you know, we need to focus on clean renewable energy to, and not uh, allow distractions get in the way because we have such a short time period. We can't just experiment with everything, mm -hmm. especially when we know it's not going to work. One of the main points that the declaration addresses is that we already have cost-effective and performance-sufficient technology capable of supporting 100% renewable energy around the globe. You stress that the biggest factors that are preventing this goal from actually happening are not actually technological. They're political and infrastructural. What needs to change and who needs to be involved in changing it? Who needs to be at the table? Who isn't already there? Yes, the main barriers are social and political. Well, we need some policymakers, certainly who are amenable to renewable energy now, <laughs> because there are a lot of people, policymakers who are completely against it. I think they're a minority, but when they come into the conversation, they really dilute the solution. So we really need to focus on you know, strong solutions. Yeah, so we have like 95% of the technologies that we need have already been developed. Not, you know, the ones that haven't been developed are, for example, long distance aircraft running on hydrogen fuel cells. We do have short distance aircraft running on hydrogen fuel cells and electricity, but not long distance, same long distance ships too. You know, aside from those and a couple others, we have all the technologies we need. So it's really a question of implementing policies to increase the speed at which these uh, technologies are implemented. And so, for example, well, there's a lot has happened in the electric power sector. There's now mandates to go to 100% renewable electric power in many states and countries, as I mentioned. 
Uh, we do need that for the whole US and for all countries of the world, but buildings is another sector. So California, for example, is now already has a law to require all buildings to be zero net energy, meaning that all, new, when I say buildings, all new residences that is, have to be zero net energy as of 2020. And that means that they have to produce as much renewable energy on site as they consume. So in pretty much the only way you're gonna produce that to match the production with the consumption is to have solar on your roof mm-hmm. and implement energy efficiency measures that would do it. But there's still a loophole that allows natural gas to go in homes. So California is now uh, considering banning natural gas in new buildings. Mm -hmm. And in fact, 39 cities have already done that in California and Mm -hmm. some other cities and other states also banned gas. But that's the kind of strong action we need is to ban natural gas from buildings so that we, everything is electric. We use electric appliances. And I should point out my own home I built in 2017, Mm -hmm. there's no gas in it. And it runs on solar and has batteries and has heat pumps for air heating, water heating, air conditioning. Heat pumps use one fourth the energy as a gas heater. Mm -hmm. So they are really cheap to run. Everything's electric. A stove is an electric induction, which uh, boils water and half the time is a gas stove. In fact, uh, chefs, although I'm not a a chef myself, I dabble, but uh, real chefs actually like induction cooktops. And so this is a... you know, technology that you can implement right away. Because I produce my own solar for my roof, you know, I did have to pay for the rooftop right. solar and the batteries, but I have not had to pay an electric bill, a natural gas bill, or a gasoline bill in almost four years now. And in fact, I produce 20% more electricity than I consume each year. And I get paid for that about $800 a year. Mm-hmm. So when you add all that up and I avoided like a $6,000 gas hookup fee to my property, and I avoided gas pipes, which are another $10,000. When you add everything up, it's a payback time mm-hmm. to, go to have a re- an all-electric in renewable energy home of about five years with subsidies, without subsidies, mm-hmm. about nine or 10 years. But all the, you know, solar is warranted for 25 years. So it's like free energy after, well, with subsidy about five years. So it's like a no-brainer in my mind mm-hmm. uh, for new buildings. And you can also do this for existing buildings. You can retrofit them with clean renewable, with heat pumps, with LED lights. In fact, I did that to my first home back in 20, mm-hmm. 2005, and that worked really well too. So there is really no reason not to uh, transition buildings, with, to have them with no gas. Uh, then we need to do cars, all electric cars, some hydrogen fuel cell for long distance heavy transport. So, you know, everybody's next car, if they're going to buy one, I'm not recommending they buy, you can do other things too, but if you do, it should be an electric car. And then the final prong is industry, where we have existing technologies, electric resistance furnaces, arc furnaces, uh, induction furnaces, and other technologies that can handle high temperature industrial processes. So we just need strong laws to be put in place. There's a question here, I guess, at the intersection of social justice on the one hand, uh, economic justice on on the second hand, and then of course on the third hand, we have three hands in this hypothetical scenario, environmental justice. And and the question really is about, you know, 
uh, I think that for many people who have the means to build a new house and pay for solar, um, this is an obvious next step. What do we do in the context of folks who are just trying to find enough money to pay for basic housing? What do we do with the cost of creating new housing in the, in the context of social justice and economic justice um, with these new kind of economic requirements for building that kind of housing that then gets passed on to, for example, consumers who already have a limited budget just to just to home themselves. Well, I should point out that in seven states in the U.S., there's an option for utilities called a Community Choice Aggregation Utility, CCA. And what that means is that, well, these utilities, um, especially in California, but also some other states, they can procure 100% clean renewable energy electricity. So let's say you're in an apartment where you can't control what you're, you know, solar on the rooftop of the apartment. You do have a choice in these states of your utility to pay your electric bill. And so, you know, the cost of going to 100% renewable electricity with a CCA is virtually the same as with a normal utility that has a lot of fossil fuels in your electricity. So that's one thing that you know a consumer can do without affecting their budget whatsoever. But you can you can and actually not having to build anything on your your home or apartment uh, is to go use a CCA that ha- uh, that allows 100% renewables. Now, not every state does that, but that's again where policies need to be put in place in all the states and countries that allow the same model, which works really well. Now, in terms of again go to apartments, it's really I think that's where policies need to be put in place at the states or uh, or na- at the national level should require apartment complexes to replace their gas heaters or gas uh, stoves. And in fact, that's what California is doing. They're, they're at least they're considering a law to require, to not allow uh, new gas appliances such as stoves and uh, heaters. And so that's really should be up to the apartment manager or, or uh, owner and not necessarily the person who rents. So certainly for low income uh, homeowners who do want to transition, there are lots of subsidies available. Mm -hmm. And I think they are graduated such that the the lower your income, the greater the subsidy in at least at state level. And I think also maybe at the federal level too, but more should be done to really encourage everybody because we want to transition to 100% clean renewable energy for 100% of the people. Mm -hmm. And uh, to that end, yeah, trying to work in communities uh, to reduce the barriers because Mm -hmm. low income people not only are suffering the most from air pollution, often close to the freeways or close to the factories and suffer the most from air pollution, but also more difficult to transition. Uh, The good news is, is that if we do transition, then people who do live close to the pollution sources will benefit the most because we're going to eliminate pollution from the freeways by going to electric cars and we'll eliminate factory pollution by going to electric uh, industry and so that'll have the greatest benefit in low-income communities i was out backpacking in big sur this weekend and of course i was not a big sur proper because big sur proper is still suffering the devastating consequences of the fires that have ravaged california landscape and the landscape and and kind of looking at some of that this devastation brought up a conversation that i wanted to pick your brain about there's a debate in environmental discourses i understand it between what are called conservationists or people who want to focus time and energy and effort primarily on restoring or conserving environments Um, And another group uh, of those who do not believe that conservation 
will restore the environment who, who want to develop techno fixes or engineer the environment, shoot objects up in space to protect against the sun's heat, for example, or introduce particles that mediate pH levels in coral reefs, for another example, um, to attempt to undo climate damage. So for example, to get a little bit more specific, one group wants to actively pursue technological fixes to mediate the damage that humans have caused, but others, including the climate activist E.O. Wilson, the marine biologist Terry Hughes, or Ken Caldera, who is a colleague of yours at Stanford at the Carnegie Institution for Science, have called these techno fixes impractical and have expressed concern that putting our stock and efforts in tech innovation to fix environmental destruction through engineering is wrong-minded. They argue that even the best intentioned intervention can do more harm than good. And they also warn that there's a danger in that idea that because we have techno solutions, we can keep damaging the environment because we can always fix it in the future. So conservationism or techno fixes, what's your take? These techno fixes are they're referred to as geoengineering and geoengineering is, I consider one of these all of the above solutions that just doesn't work. I mean, geoengineering doesn't solve any problem. All it does is hide the, the problem. It doesn't reduce any fossil fuel use. In fact, it increases it because mm -hmm. it allows fossil fuels to persist because it gives people the same correct impression that we're, we're hiding the, the impacts or being mitigated so we can therefore keep emitting. But let's say you're, you're let's say you reduce the temperatures by like putting um, particles into the stratosphere. Let's say you temporarily decrease the temperatures. Well, you still allow all this fossil fuel pollution to kill 7 million people a year. In fact, it, it makes people more cavalier. So they think mm -hmm. they can emit more. And so it even kills more people. So it's just a really dumb idea. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's, it's very narrow-minded people who have these geoengineering solutions and it doesn't solve anything. It makes problems worse. It gives people mm -hmm. complacency. We really need to stop the emissions mm -hmm. and there's a one way to stop the emissions and that's to transition away from combustion, get rid of combustion and go to electrification primarily to provide our energy. You're the co-founder of the Solutions Project. What is the project and what led you to start it? So the Solutions Project was a, is a nonprofit that I co-found uh, in 2011 with uh, Mark Ruffalo, who's an actor and activist, uh, Josh Fox, who does documentaries and an artist, and Marco Kraples, who's a businessman. And we came together that year and really trying to talk, we were talking about New York and trying to find a, an alternative to natural gas hydrofracking because at the time, well, Pennsylvania, there was a lot of fracking going on, which is extraction of natural gas and shale rock through spraying water and chemicals under high pressure to crack rock and release methane, which is a source of energy. And so New York was pondering whether to allow that as well. And so there was a big push in New York not to, to get the governor not to allow it. I actually, before that, developed a, a plan, a worldwide plan to transition to 100% renewable energy with Mark DeLuke at uh, UC Davis at the time. So that got their attention or got the other people in the group's attention. And so we met and we talked about, well, can we develop a plan for New York? and kind of balked at first because I know how much time it took, but I ended up writing a, a plan for New York. And, but along the way, and we met some other people who were uh, instrumental in this along the way, we really became bonded together and decided, well, we should, you know, we really have a lot more clout as a group when we consider because it was really a combination of science, business, culture, and also community. 
And so if we actually have people representing each area, it was actually more powerful than just a scientist acting on his or her own or you know, a community leader acting on his or her own or an actor acting on his or her own. So we, we came together and decided to form this kind of, it was actually a loose group at the time. It didn't become a nonprofit until 2013, two years later. But behind the scenes, we just gathered a lot of support and we were actually very effective. There were a lot of people in New York who were against fracking and we provided uh, with, through the New York energy plan that we developed, we provided an alternative to fracking. And eventually the governor did ban uh, fracking in New York and did actually pass a law to go to 100% renewable. So it was very successful there. And then we decided to expand to other states and to, to develop plans for other states. Mm-hmm. And so at first, the, the Solutions Project was a group that would try to, it was developing and then amplifying these clean renewable energy plans for the 50 United States. And then eventually it kind of transitioned to looking more at poor communities and trying to help transitions in uh, diverse communities. And so that's really where it stands right now and less on developing the energy plans, but I still develop energy plans uh, for states and countries. I wanted to follow up with your last point about developing policies in individual local communities. And because as I understand it, as I was listening to you talking, one aim of the project is to amplify the voices of those working to solve the climate crisis in their own communities by trying to lay local groundwork for action anchored in local communities. So how do we think about the relationship between local small community action on the one hand and large sweeping legislative or policy-based action on the other? Well, I think they go together because we need action on all sorts of levels, uh, at the individual level, mm-hmm. at the community level, at the business level, at the city level, state level, national level. So right now, I mean, under the last administration, there was a lot going on at the city level and at the state level. I mean, all these 14 uh, states and territories in the U.S. that passed 100% renewable electricity laws, you know, they did these without national support, but it was because the people really wanted to act on climate change and air pollution. And same thing with these, all these cities and, and communities as well. So they, everybody has to work together. I mean, we're, we can only do so much with the law, national laws, uh, but we can do a lot with combining the national laws with individual and community action. I I struggle with this. So I wanted to ask you to unpack that a little bit more because on the one hand, I think it can be incredibly disempowering to tell people that recycling or buying a hybrid car or turning off their lights probably isn't going to be the thing that averts the existential and imminent danger of climate destruction because emissions and destructions are happening on macro levels with the largest contributions coming from a hundred or so companies, uh, at least according to the account given by the Climate Accountability Institute. I don't want to minimize the importance of individual local action and accountability. I bring my own reusable bags when I go shopping. Last time I had to buy a car, I bought a hybrid car. I turn off lights. I try to be as conscious as possible about minimizing my contribution to carbon footprint. But I also wouldn't want people to feel like maybe if we just all brought our own reusable bags to do our grocery shopping, everything would be okay. What's your take? Well, I think people can eat in this case, be selfish. And when you buy an electric car, you don't even have to buy it because of the planet. It's because you're going to save $20,000 in fuel costs over the next 15 years. I mean, that's a simple hard fact. The electrification and clean renewable energy reduce costs substantially. And so when I say, like, if you buy an electric car, and when I say electric, not a hybrid car, because a hybrid also burns gasoline and you won't get the same efficiency as an electric car, but it's still a good step. And that, <laughs> it's, uh, that, yeah, it's an important step. But a full electric car 
Well, you know, the cost of gasoline in California is $3.50 a gallon. The cost of driving an electric car is the equivalent of 80 cents a gallon. And if you drive 15,000 miles per year for 15 years, that's $20,000 in fuel cost savings. So that, and the same thing with electrifying, you know, getting a heat pump instead of a gas heater for your home. It costs one fourth the fuel cost to do to, with an electric heat pump compared with a gas heater. So you save, you know, hundreds to thousands of dollars each year just by going to a different technology. And, and same with LED lights. LED lights instead of incandescent lights, even though the LED light costs more, it uses one twentieth the electricity. And so if you have a hundred lights, that's, that adds up to a lot of money and weatherization. That's a very simple thing that people can do in their homes. They, mm-hmm. you know, just sealing you know, cracks in the, under their windows that can save a lot of money in heat losses and, mm-hmm. you know, or just adding insulation can make your home feel warmer in the winter without using so much energy. So all these things really have a financial benefit to individuals, mm-hmm. but, and then if, if people do them, then they actually cumulatively, they all have a benefit to climate as well. I still think it's a very good idea for people individually to do things because they will benefit. You'll just have a more comfortable lifestyle too. So the top five things individuals can do. Yeah. So not, not going to say or in a particular order, but yeah, heat pumps, electric cars, well, weatherizing your home in better insulation and reducing leaks, LED lights, of course, if you can put solar on your roof, that's mm-hmm. that would be good too. And then electrify all of the other appliances that are not electric already. But when I say heat pumps, you can for a water heater. Well, I would I'll separate the heat pumps into a heat pump water heater and heat pump air heater air conditioner. Mm-hmm. And because the water heater, most people that's most of the consumption of energy in most people's homes is the water heater. Just think of anything in your home that doesn't run on electricity already. Electrify it and try to use more energy efficient appliances next time you have to get a new appliance. You've talked about this already a little bit, but I want to press you further. I know you've talked uh, about how you work to create a energy conscious, energy efficient home for yourself. One of my student producers on the show is an architecture major who's very passionate about sustainable building. And he wanted to know, once he heard I was interviewing you, how do we think about building cities and structures for the future in a climate responsible way? For example, as we retrofit older buildings with solar cells and create a more decentralized system of energy production, again, solar panels on houses, what kind of changes can average Americans expect in the way our systems work? Is decentralized energy production part of a new form of power system? And, and what are the consequences of that for the public and for governmentally regulated utility systems? Right. Well, so decentralized energy is, for example, having solar panels far away, I mean, as opposed to a centralized power system like a, a big coal plant or a nuclear plant is a centralized power source or so decentralized is having a lot of individual wind turbines or, uh, or rooftop solar systems separated. And these really come into play everywhere. But like you can imagine though, there are a lot of places, there are over a billion people who have no access to energy worldwide. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine instead of having to you know, build gas pipelines to these people, or even transmission lines, you can have local sources of solar or wind and what, in what we call a microgrid, where it's really an islanded grid where there's might be solar, there could be some wind, it could be some battery storage, uh, could be uh, even hydrogen fuel cells for heat and electricity if, if necessary. And, and it could even be uh, food, growing food. Like if you're in the Arctic in a remote village, having this remote, right now, like in the Arctic, in these villages, there are airplanes that come in that bring in carton food that's very mm-hmm. unhealthy food usually because it's in package, packages. 
and they also bring in diesel fuel. And so it's really expensive fuel, really expensive food, and it's not very healthy food. What if you produce your own electricity from some solar panels, even in the Arctic, solar panels, mm -hmm. and some wind and some batteries, and then you have a container that you use the electricity, some of the electricity for to grow food, that's just a healthier, lower cost system. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine a lot of those microgrids sprouting up. But in general, um, you know, the, if you have compact cities, then, you know, you're heating, there's two types of heating for cities. There's, there's district heating and then there's individual home heating. So mm -hmm. district heating is where you have like a centralized heating system and then you have, you heat the heat water and then you pipe the water to individual buildings mm -hmm. and then you, that provides heat and hot water for the building. Mm -hmm. So in fact, in the U.S., about 7% of all heating is district heating. There's also district cooling, which is the same thing, but you have centralized coolers. Now, that's pretty advantageous when you have densely packed cities, and they do it a lot in Northern Europe and in Canada and China and, and Russia. Mm -hmm. But when you have um, you know, urban, pop rural populations mm -hmm. where everything's spread out, then you, you want your heating and cooling in your individual buildings. It actually is advantageous to have solar on your roof. You know, when we look at the future, we're going to have a combination of rooftop solar and solar farms, which are util we call utility scale solar, because there's just not enough rooftops actually to just put all the solar we need uh, mm -hmm. to power the whole US or world for all purposes. So, you know, we can have power maybe 25 to 30% of all energy for all purposes with rooftop solar, but there's just not enough rooftops. So we're gonna have to have large scale centralized uh, solar mm -hmm. systems as well, but also we'll have a lot of distributed rooftop solar. And I think that's having both is a good because it just mm -hmm. makes things more resilient to have uh, a combination of types of solar and also the same with wind, although you won't have rooftop wind. <laughs> I was listening to an interview you gave in 2019. And in that interview, you talked about creating a climate model as a passion project of yours. And you put quite a lot of time and effort into it. Uh, in the interview, you said you've been working on it since 1990. And that puts this climate model program at having 31 years of work poured into it. How has that model evolved over time? Are you still actively working on the project? And, and can you share some of the insights you've gained from this project? That was my original PhD work mm -hmm. where I built a computer model to study air pollution in Los Angeles. And the, you know, a computer model, just to give people an idea, it's, it's three-dimensional. So it, it breaks up the atmosphere into a bunch of boxes you know, horizontally and vertically. And it could be anywhere from a few hundred thousand to a million or more boxes. And, I, and it treats emissions, chemistry in the atmosphere, particles, particle emissions as well, and transformations from gases to particles. It treats clouds and formation of clouds, interaction of gases and particles with clouds, treats radiation through the atmosphere, it predicts the winds, predicts temperatures. So it's a weather prediction model as well as an air pollution model. And then after my PhD, I then expanded that to into a global climate model. So with all the details of urban chemistry model. And so I was able to study global climate looking at the, and I specialized in looking at the impacts of pollutant particles, particularly uh, dark particles, black carbon and brown carbon are called. Mm -hmm. Black carbon is the main component of diesel exhaust, for example, from trucks and buses, that black smoke. Mm -hmm. What's the impact of that on climate? And from this, I found that it may be the second leading cause of global warming after carbon dioxide. So, but I studied at the global scale and the urban scale, and then I meshed them together so I could look at scales in between and look at high resolution simulations that accounted for global scale meteorology. And I've been building this model 
uh, for the last 31 years and it's still going. Most recently, I'm looking at, you know, I added renewable energy, wind turbines into the model, solar panels. So I can count for like, if I have a bunch of wind turbines, because wind turbines extract energy from the wind. And so they slow down the winds. And so how does that impact other wind turbines? If you have, you know, one wind turbine and it's taking energy out, how does that impact another wind turbine? And then if you have hundreds of thousands of these, mm-hmm. you know, there's going to be a reduction of energy in the atmosphere. So I'd calculate that solar radiation extraction. And I use that now to predict wind fields and solar fields for looking at keeping the electric power grid stable. So when we're developing a plan for a state or a country to see if we can uh, power that state or country entirely on renewable energy, namely wind and water and solar power, I can now use this weather prediction model to predict every 30 seconds the wind fields and the solar radiation fields. And so I can actually then predict, yeah, what is the supply of energy? Like in Texas, you know, when you have this cold blast, I can predict the winds and the solar fields, for example, and calculate how much renewable energy is available. And and so I do this right now to determine if we can keep the grid stable in different parts of the world. And it turns out that we can. We've looked at 143 countries all 50 states, and we find that we can keep the grid entirely stable with 100% renewable energy. Mm-hmm. And that's using this weather prediction climate model to predict the wind and solar fields. I will promise to not let you go before I ask you a question about Texas, because we're recording on February 18th, a few days after the uh, Texas freeze crisis. But I wanted to ask you a, a question first about your optimism. 31 years is a long time to be sounding the climate change alarm. And I can imagine that it might be for other less optimistic uh, folks, pretty devastating to look back on 30 plus years of work and to see in that 31 plus years when we could have done something, we mostly didn't. In fact, the problems and the contributions to the problem uh, got worse over that time period for the most part. What keeps you energized? What keeps you going? Well, I try to be optimistic, but I also, since I do look at solutions and do run the numbers, I'm confident we can solve the air pollution and the climate problem together. And we have the technologies, we have the the materials, costs are coming down. So I just looking at the numbers, I know we can do it technically and economically. It is a question of political will. So I try to be optimistic based on the technical and economic aspect of it and that we and hope that we can obtain that political will. And I do see that we are doing better and better in terms of political will. I mean, there are most countries of the world are supporting transitions to entirely clean and renewable energy. There are still some holdouts and there's still in each country, there are holdouts, but I think there is a, a consensus now internationally. So that gives me confidence as well. This is not my argument and I will not pretend it is, but there is a devil's advocate argument that I would like to present to you uh, because it is frequently enlisted in a form of resistance to transferring to renewable and clean energy. One major pushback to the transitions that you're proposing to new energy is constantly circulating around the loss of jobs in coal and oil industries. This is an argument put forth by a number of people with whom I disagree, but I want to hear your take on it anyway. Uh, While there are propositions to teach, um, to reskill, to move these workers into new fields, it's still met with a lot of pushback. 
What solutions do you see to this kind of what's called, at least, or claimed to be job loss? Stepping back into the recent 10-point de uh, declaration you co-signed, you do state that renewable energy, according to your study, will create ample amount of jobs worldwide, fill the holes created by the loss of non-renewable energy sources. If jobs aren't the problem and economic loss isn't the problem for your declaration and in your assessment, what do you think we're facing here? And do you think there's a solution? Well, and just to clarify, so we, yeah, we do the calculation of how many jobs are created versus lost. Mm -hmm. And we find in the U.S. that a transition entirely to clean renewable energy would create about 3 million more long-term full-time jobs than lost and worldwide about 28 million more. So it's de definitely if we don't transition, that means we're going to have fewer jobs. I think the reason people latch on to the jobs that are lost rather than the jobs that are gained is because, you know, these are real people who are losing their jobs and they have to transition. Some of them may not recover very easily, uh, you know, although in, we'll have a net gain, you know, that doesn't take away from the pain and suffering of some people. Mm -hmm. So we do have to you know, come up with a solution to mitigate the impacts on people who can, who have a hard, hard time transitioning to a new job. So, um, but having said that, we find you know, there will be a net benefit, and this is why we should keep pushing forward on this. We should focus on trying to solve the problem of you know, the people who do lose their jobs to try to transition them, uh, but that should not stall us from actually moving forward. I guess I should go back to that question I wanted to ask you earlier about the situation currently in Texas. As I said, we're recording on February 18th, and Texas is in the middle of a massive failure or crisis with millions of people in Texas lacking power, uh, frozen pipes, outages that have caused people tremendous amount of devastation and, and pain. The claim, of course, has come by, by some, again, people with whom I disagree, that this is wind turbines freezing, et cetera. What's your take on the state of these uh, devastating outages in Texas right now. What, is this a political failure? Is this a failure of infrastructure? Yeah, well, first of all, it is horrible for the people experiencing it. Um, the fundamental problem in Texas is that it's very energy inefficient. Like an individual person in Texas consumes about two to two and a quarter times the electricity compared with a person in California. Mm -hmm. So they're just using so much more energy because they have lots of fossil fuels in Texas and they have been just not instituted energy efficiency measures and haven't taken steps to reduce energy use. So that's the first fundamental problem is they're just using way too much energy there. Mm -hmm. Their buildings leak a lot. And so when it gets cold, you need a lot of extra heat because all your heat is leaking through the windows and the doors. So that's the first step. Second step, well, in, that, in terms of what actually happened, most of the electricity production in Texas is from natural gas coal and nuclear, and all three of those froze, or there were, there were equipment freezings for all three of those. And so there was, that was the bulk of the cause of the blackouts. Now wind, there's about a 30, a third, maybe 36% of the wind turbines had uh, freezing problems as well, but the remaining ones actually overproduced compared to what they were expected because you know when you have a storm, you have higher winds usually. So that when you do have operating wind turbines, they'll actually overproduce. But in net, because there were some turbines that were not working, there was a mm -hmm. slight reduction of wind power. But wind power, again, is, is only a portion of the total electricity in Texas. It's mostly natural gas, coal, mm -hmm. and nuclear. And they all went down to some degree or a case of gas a lot. So that's the fundamental um, problem. Now, with wind turbines, even the ones that were frozen, you know, there are solutions. I mean, there are, you know, Denmark is a lot colder than Texas. 
and 50% plus of its electricity is from wind and it doesn't have these problems because they figured out ways to thaw out or de-ice the wind turbines. And same with Northern states in the United States like North Dakota, South Dakota or Michigan even, and other states that have more snow and cold than Texas, you know, they've addressed these problems, the same in Canada as well. So wind is definitely not the problem in Texas. Uh, and going forward, it's certainly, it's a solvable issue for the turbines that did go down, but they do have fundamental grid problems. As I mentioned, efficiency problems, their grid is not connected to the rest of the US very much at all. And so as a result, when you do have a lack of electricity in Texas, you can't import it. You know, California can import electricity when there's a lack of it. In fact, it does quite a bit. So that's another issue. And they're just not prepared because it doesn't, you know, these events, these cold events, the last one was in 2011, that yeah. was 10 years ago, so. The other major problem is, and this is uh, above the tech failures of the energy production system in Texas, is of course that this is an extreme weather condition caused by climate change. Um, I'm looking right here at the statement given by Liz Sherwood Randall, who's a Homeland Security Advisor to President Joe Biden. The statement she issued is that climate change is real and it is happening now and we are not adequately, adequately prepared for it. The question that I have here has to do with these increasingly dangerous weather patterns, whether it is in Texas or in California, whether it is in Louisiana, whether it is in other parts of the world. Do these events and will this event, do you think, serve as a linchpin moment to move us forward in energy policy and in climate protection policy? Or is this just another one in the series of events that we crushingly, disappointingly don't uh, leverage into momentum? Well, I... <laughs> I would hope that it helps to advance the ball, but you know, I think that people who are supporting climate change action will use that as a reason to advance it, but people who are opposed to any more action will find an excuse not to and just latch on to tired theories of you know, wind turbines causing the problems or as, long as the governor of Texas was blaming the Green New Deal on the problem, even though the Green New Deal doesn't even exist yet. So um, I think, you know, you're going to have, you have two camps of people who will, uh, are opposed pretty much diametrically opposite in what they want to do going forward. Mm -hmm. I think we'll peel off some more people uh, favoring action. So mm -hmm. I think that will, there will be a net benefit, but you're still going to have um, people opposing action as well. Are you more optimistic in the Biden administration than you were, say, a month and a half ago? Yeah, well, the Biden administration is definitely improvement over the last four years, but I am concerned that there's still some of this leftover, all of the above policy, where they'll propose a few useless solutions that a lot of effort and money gets spent on, and that distracts away from real solutions. You teach at Stanford. Here's a question from a professor to professor, um, as somebody who interacts with students fairly frequently. What questions and concerns do your students bring with them about climate change, climate destruction, climate-friendly technologies? And how are you training the next generation of climate activists, technologists, humanists, and civic actors to think about climate change? What do you want them to know, to be aware of, to understand, to think about? Well, I think students, I mean, they are very passionate, at least in our program. I mean, the program that I direct is called Atmosphere Energy. It's in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. And the students that, well, we have undergraduates, we have master's students and PhD students, but all the students in the program, they're very passionate about solving climate or pollution problems or both. So we don't really need to convince them of anything because mm -hmm. they're coming in with that passion. 
and you know, and a concern. They're concerned about their future, and they're concerned about yeah where we're going where we're going and the status of the climate. Then they want to contribute to the solution. So that's the nice thing. I'm very proud of these students. Our the program started in 2004, and since then we've had over 400 graduates. They study energy, renewable energy, that is, and air pollution and climate. So these are all now experts or semi-experts going out into the real world, into companies, into government, into education, or into nonprofits, and really having a big impact. And so it's really makes me proud to see all all of them succeed, and to have this impact. Mm-hmm. And you know, so it's. Yeah, very gratifying. And we do have some of these students are helping produce our plans for states and countries. So that's one of the projects that a lot of students have gotten involved with. I think we've had over 80 students, in fact, get involved in these projects to build energy plans for states and countries and cities. And that's also very gratifying to see that, you know, they contribute to the solution and they can, when they see something get passed into law, they can be proud of that as well. So I typically end these interviews by asking my interviewees a question about their optimism. So I'm going to start off with apocalypse, but please know that this is heading, hopefully, toward optimism. Many of those who talk about climate change do so in these kind of grand apocalyptic terms. And and I'm thinking in particular of an article that Jonathan Franzen published in The New Yorker in 2019 titled, The Climate Apocalypse is Coming. To prepare for it, we need to admit that we can't prevent it. That's the title. In that piece, he notes that the goal has been clear, and I'm quoting him here, for 30 years, and despite earnest efforts, we have made essentially no progress toward achieving it. And he concludes that if you care about the planet and about the people and the animals who live on it, there are two ways to think about this. You can keep on hoping that catastrophe is preventable and feel ever more frustrated or enraged by the world's inaction. Or you can accept that disaster is coming and begin to rethink what it means to have hope. To quote the novelist Franz Kafka, not particularly well known for his optimism, Franzen writes, there is infinite hope, but not for us. Is Franzen wrong? If so, why? And what keeps you optimistic? Well, yeah, there is hope. I mean, well, the problem is significant. I mean, it's immediate in terms of air pollution. I mean, there are 7 million people die from air pollution each year. And that's growing and the climate problem is getting worse. And sure, if we don't do anything, yeah, we will have dire consequences. We're already seeing some of these bad consequences, but those consequences will get worse. But there is a movement worldwide to remedy the problem. And there is a solution that if we do implement, will solve the problem. And it'll take till 2100, let's say, to return CO2 levels down to maybe 350 parts per million. But you know, we really need to implement the solution rapidly within 15 years and 80% within nine or 10 years. And the numbers do work out. There is a benefit of transitioning and there is a, there's technically we can do it. There's materials, there's, there's enough land, we'll create jobs. There's a whole set of benefits from transitioning. So that makes me optimistic that we can do it. And I do see legislation being put in in a lot of different places that also makes me optimistic, but there's still a long way to go. But you know, as long as world leaders align together and community leaders and also individuals, if individuals will also make an effort on their own, it's like a, it's a multi-pronged effort. And so if these multi-prongs come together and all of them make efforts, then we I do think we can solve the problem. 
What's your confidence level? Should we be feeling lucky? Well, I'm confident because it's just, there's a confluence of a lot of good things. Their costs have come down and public interest and desire to solve the problem has gone up. And so those two things make me pretty highly confident. So I'll say more than just confident, I'm very confident we will solve the problem. Now, whether it might be a little late, you know, it might be not the timeline I want, but I think we will within a few years after that solve the problem. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Technically Human. The challenge of climate change is massive and it is urgent. You can support the move to clean renewable energy and you can help sustain and repair the health of our planet and our environment for future generations. The Global 100 Renewable Energy Strategy Group Declaration has outlined a plan to do exactly that. To support the transformation to renewable energy by signing your name to the declaration, please visit www.global100restrategygroup.org. That's www.global100restrategygroup.org. You can also find a link to the declaration in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support.